Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is that thinking about possible futures can give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we'll be asking, what would happen if America left NATO? So really, the EU would have an enormous task if it were to be able to replicate all of those things that America currently does. And we travel to the future for a lesson in sharenting. You can't get back those moments that have been sharented. But we do always have the ability to make sustained changes in our daily habits that add up to profound personal and societal shifts. But first, as NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, turned 70 this year, the 29-member alliance is facing one of its most difficult challenges, that of the attitude of American President Donald Trump. Even before becoming president, he described NATO as obsolete while on the campaign trail. And since taking office, he's constantly questioned its value. I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. But what if all this talk suddenly turned into action and America decided to pull out of NATO completely? Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defence editor, has been looking at this question as part of our World If edition, which is published at the beginning of July. Hello, Shashank. Hello. You imagine a scenario that starts in 2023, I believe. So there's a second Trump term. How do you think we might get to the point where Donald Trump might say, you know what, we're out? There are a number of ways. He may just wake up and decide to do this, as he does for many issues. But I think more likely is that the relationship with Europe becomes more stressed, more fractious over time. Now, what's likely to cause that? Well, of course, the number one issue is trade, an escalating trade war, elements of which we've already seen with tariffs rising, tensions going up, Trump directing his anger at German automakers and protectionist Europeans could erupt one day into the president deciding, why should I? I pay lots of money to protect feckless allies who are ripping me off in his view. I think he sort of sees this like a protection racket where the Germans are supposed to be paying us for our defence services and they're not paying us enough. That's not actually how NATO works, is it? No, the president is convinced that NATO is some sort of fee-paying organisation in which members must keep up paying a fee or their debt accumulates. And he's convinced Europeans owe billions and billions in back payment. Now, NATO did promise as an alliance that its members would work towards spending 2% of their GDP on defence. Most members do not do that. The UK does, but most don't. And Mr. Trump is convinced that means they all owe tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in back payment. Okay, so let's imagine all of this just gets too much for Donald Trump and he decides, okay, we're going to just leave you to your own devices. How do you imagine that playing out? No one knows for sure. No one's ever left NATO. But legally, all Mr. Trump would have to do is issue something called a notice of denunciation to the other members of the alliance. He'd have to deliver them a message giving a year's notice of his intention to withdraw. Now, there are some debates as to whether Congress could try and stop him. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to see politically, constitutionally, how he could really be prevented from pulling out and essentially rendering the alliance, rendering its collective defence clause, Article 5, 
completely worthless. So in your scenario, he sends this letter. And uh, so how does Europe respond? What, what do you think they'd do? Well, NATO has lots of other members. It has Europeans, it has Canada, it has Turkey. In theory, you would think they could just say, OK, America's left. We'll take over the rest. We'll take over the buildings, the headquarters, the training academies, everything. NATO's a sprawling alliance. I posit a scenario in which the Turks, who of course are wrangling with Europeans over their human rights record, increasing autocracy, and the Canadians over the fact they are of course thousands of miles away, block a European takeover of NATO institutions. And that means Europe, whatever that means, the European Union, Britain, uh, France and Germany, uh, which collection of states you prefer, has to find some sort of alternative mechanism for building up their own alliance. Okay, so then you posit this idea of a sort of European treaty organisation, ITO, instead of NATO. But it turns out that the rest of NATO relies rather heavily on America for the sort of glue that holds the alliance together, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, weapons, arms, planes, these are all important things. And and a recent study by IISS, a think tank, found that Europeans would have to spend over $300 billion to make up these shortfalls for any kind of major conflict. But more important than the things we would think are important, than the tanks or the F-35 fighter jets, are the enabling capabilities, the air-to-air refuelling planes, the tankers that would take troops from one place to another, the command headquarters that are able to organise and communicate with divisions of troops fighting far away. It's all of those things, the things we perhaps don't think about as much when we think about militaries or armed forces that Europe lacks and that America provides. NATO has a headquarters based in in Belgium that's capable of managing huge numbers of troops. The EU is building up its own military headquarters, but only for training purposes for far smaller missions. So really, the EU would have an enormous task if it were to be able to replicate all of those things that America currently does. Okay, so this is this is going to obviously be a big financial problem. You'd have to invest in all of these things. What about the sort of internal politics within this new alliance? Because one of the striking things is, and this would become much more obvious, the French and the British, if they're still part of this, have got nuclear weapons. Other European powers don't. Um, how do you think that might affect things? Well, Britain pledges its nuclear weapons to NATO. France doesn't. So for a start, if Britain's not in your new EU alliance, you've got a nuclear problem. Do you want nuclear weapons or not? Now, if you do want French nuclear weapons, how do you get them involved? Do you try and pay the French some money so they share their nuclear weapons? That may sound completely bonkers, but it's an idea that actually has been discussed by serious experts. Or do you accept that there's going to be lots of anti-nuclear opinion in places like Germany, in other big European countries that says we don't want to be a nuclear alliance anymore? Apart from the nuclear question, there's also the question of who gets the best jobs. NATO has always been run by an American, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. The Deputy Supreme Allied Commander is always a Brit. If you don't have Americans and you don't have Brits, who gets these jobs? You're looking potentially at sort of vicious bureaucratic wrangling between the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Poles and all sorts of others for who commands these things. Okay, well, this all sounds very interesting and quite worrying. So the big question is, how likely you think this might be? So if you were a betting man, what do you think the the odds are? Because the trouble with Donald Trump is he says he threatens to do all sorts of things and he doesn't do a lot of them, but he does do some of them. That's right. I think it's unlikely that he would formally withdraw from NATO, not least because of the political storm he would have to weather at home. So I think there's a fairly small chance of that, sort of less than 20%. What I would say, though, is that NATO is only as strong as its collective security 
guarantees, the sense that people believe that if something happens, allies will act as if they've all been attacked. So Trump can undermine the alliance, not just by formally sending letters and unwinding it, but also by playing down or obfuscating or ignoring challenges to one of the allies in ways that are obvious to the rest of us. But he says, well, I don't see anything. Putin would never do that. And that in the sort of short term or medium term could be just as serious a problem for the alliance as a complete collapse. That's also a worrying scenario. Okay, well, Shashank Joshi, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And if you want to read his scenario in detail, it's published in the July 6th, 2019 edition of The Economist and also on our website at economist.com. And finally, as part of our World If specials, we're now going to trial a landmark technology that allows us to broadcast Economist podcasts from the future. All I have to do is press this button and I can play an episode of The Economist's Babbage podcast from the year 2029. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Paper, and coming up on this week's show... How did the hackers get away with so much money in the great Libra heist? Nobody saw it coming. They really are the modern-day Bonnie and Clyde of the cyber world. And after two years living and working on the lunar biodome, is Elon Musk finally ready to come back to Earth? Since he's been up there, he's been running his company so successfully that the share prices have done fantastically. And because they've done so well, it's conceivable that his employees, and more importantly, his investors, will want him to stay up there. But first, this week has seen a landmark trial finally come to an end, and perhaps June 24th, 2029, will be remembered in history as a pivotal day for privacy. On this day, for the first time, a parent has become legally required to pay damages for posting videos and photos of their child on social media platforms such as Quero, Facebook, and Yahoo++. I'm standing outside the High Court here in London as a landmark ruling has just been made by Lord Justice Blair in a case that will reverberate around the internet. Court ruling earlier today has forced a mother to pay her daughter £50,000 for breaching her right to privacy and publishing photos of her childhood on social media. Now the courts have ruled in favour of the child. Will every parent be liable for the images they post online? At The Economist, we have respected the plaintiff's request for privacy and anonymity, so we will not mention her name, even though it is in the public domain. Yet we have spoken with people involved in the case to get an inside perspective of just how widespread the problem of oversharing has become. To begin, I spoke with the plaintiff's solicitor, Emma Walcott, who is a partner at the law firm Mishkondoray and also leads its reputation protection group. I asked her to sum up the case. So it is a significant victory for privacy campaigners. So here is a young girl who has just won high court damages in the UK high court. She sued her parents for privacy infringement in relation to photos and videos they have posted on social media since her early childhood. My client, she's a strong, ambitious woman. She wants to start her career as a human rights barrister afresh and choose how her professional achievements define her. I think, you know, the court here understood 
that it's a hindrance and a challenge for young professional women to start out if anyone searching their name has a back catalogue of photographs of them from their childhood. She tells me she's had a long interest in the balance of rights, and this was a difficult case for her to take. But I think she realizes that she's setting a precedent and helping society to reevaluate this balance of freedom of expression and the right to privacy and hoping to tip the balance back to help a better appreciation of children's rights to their own sense of autonomy. I like it when my parents take my photograph because I really like looking back at them. I like it because they um, hold the memories. Because it's nice and I like it. Other people, like our cousins and stuff, get to see us in photos. In addition to her lawyer, her case was supported by the civil liberties and privacy organization Big Brother Watch. Silky Carlo, the director, explains who they are and what they do. We're a privacy and civil liberties campaigning nonprofit organization. We believe that privacy is a fundamental right, as is enshrined in human rights frameworks, and also that it's intrinsic to human experience. The ability to have a private life enables us to think freely, live freely, develop our personalities, friendships, relationships and ideas freely. And our concern is that in a world of increasing surveillance, data valence, social media, that we are losing the ability to live a private life in the digital world. So in terms of the recent case, who do you believe should own the data, the parents or the child? Own is an interesting word because it refers to data as a commodity, which in many ways it it is. That's how it's treated in the modern world. But really, data and information about yourself, it's yours in the sense that you own it, but it's also yours in the sense that you have rights over it. When a child becomes an adult, they get to make their own decisions. And here we can see a really interesting case where an adult is making a retrospective decision about things they didn't have an opportunity to have a say on at the time. Clearly, the decisions the parent made earlier on in her life are now affecting her and will continue to. And, and partly those are in ways that the parent couldn't predict. The term used to describe these actions that we're now all so familiar with is sharenting, a hybrid of parenting and oversharing. The term began to gain popularity around 10 years ago, and it sums up the practice of parents using social media to share with the world photos, videos, and quarrels of kids online, whether the world wanted to see them or not. I have a four-year-old and an eight-and-a-half-year-old, and I was trying to figure out for myself, how do I balance the desire to connect with people I know and even people I don't know in similar circumstances? With This is Lee Plunkett with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. And 10 years ago, in 2019, she foresaw all of this with her landmark book, Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. I asked her what made her write the book. With the practices of sharenting, the transmission and other use, so including data analysis, of intimate information about kids and teens by the adults in their lives, we were really violating their expectation of privacy in their everyday lives. And I was concerned that if we started taking away this expectation of privacy, 
than our kids' ability to play, to explore, goof off, engage in mischief, make mistakes, and learn from those mistakes would be eroded. Don't like it when I'm messing around in the photo. Mammy sent a picture of me in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Blood all over my face when Mammy was taking selfies. <laughs> Childhood photos and maybe like they're embarrassing photos parents, kids probably won't want to show. I feel like there's some sort of intention behind them wanting to take my picture because I feel like there's a time and place. I don't like having my photo taken because I'm shy. They love taking my photograph, but I don't like it because I'm not a photogenic person. And it would be eroded in a couple of ways. One would be that if kids know they're performing for a camera, they're going to act differently. But even more problematically, I was very concerned about the privacy impacts that we couldn't necessarily see. And I think that there's the social acceptance part of it, the norm of it, and then there's also the need for it. Even back in 2019 when I wrote the book, it's essentially impossible to imagine a life that is completely devoid of sharenting. Now, it's taken around 10 years since you wrote the book for the first case of this kind to appear. Are you surprised by that? Yes and no. Yes, because I think that youth are incredibly tech-savvy and care deeply about their privacy. I think it's been a long-standing myth that privacy is dead when it comes to our kids. The part of me that's not surprised is that we allow our parents to have really the strongest possible legal protection for the choices they make about whether, when, and how to have children. And that notion of privacy in your reproductive choices and then your parenting and family choices is bedrock Anglo-American jurisprudence. And so the idea that a child, upon achieving the age of majority, would have a legal right to take court action against their parents for choices their parents made that were not abusive, neglectful, criminal, etc., that is deeply shocking to the way our legal system has regarded the privacy rights around parenting for centuries. And I'm sorry that it got to this point. I'm sorry that it could not have been a behavioral and norm shift, a legal shift, an industry shift that saved us from ourselves. But since it wasn't, I do think that there will be an incredible deterrent effect against oversharing as a result of this successful suit. The legal ramifications will take time to settle, but one can already see a threat to the idea that parents are free to raise their child as they see fit unless there is harm. The case turned on the question of who has control over what can be shared, both during the period when the child is young and when they become an adult. Silky Carlo again. When a child becomes an adult, they get to make their own decisions. And here we can see a really interesting case where an adult is making a retrospective decision about things they didn't have an opportunity to have a say on at the time. So I think it's completely right that people should be able to have roots to control information about them and how public it is. We're talking about essentially publicising a child and details about their life and their growth and their childhood experiences. 
I think it's all about where you draw the line. What is private life? The photos we're talking about here are, they may seem anodyne. They're photographs of her in the garden in kind of carefree moments. But they're photographs in the home. They are intimate photographs. They're private photographs. They're, they're photos of family life. I don't like it when my parents take a photograph of me because I'd rather they ask my permission first. It's not fair for them to post my whole entire life on social media. I feel like it's braggy and I don't like it when they show it to like random people like I understand family members. Don't like it when my parents are more focused on taking my photograph than on appreciating the moment we have together. Another person who has followed this case from the beginning is Sonia Livingston. She is a social psychologist at the London School of Economics, and she's also leading two projects, Global Kids Online and Children's Data and Privacy Online. Maybe we should say something about the volume and the kind of consistency of the story that's been built up about this young person. And because it's not just that everything has been put online, but a story has been told about them. And that story might not represent the person that that young person has grown up to become. When you give consent for your images to be shared, you think in the here and now, and you think with the technology that's present. You don't know what's coming 10, 20 years down the line, and you don't know all the ways that data's getting aggregated, profiled, distributed. It's very hard, really, to give consent for what we're actually all engaged in. Do you think that a child can give consent in any meaningful way? For the long-term future, actually, possibly not. And maybe none of us can. I mean, the way we've thought about these principles is that the child should always be consulted. And if the child can't give consent, then the parent gives consent. You know, that's what happens when the school collects pictures of children, for example, and where do they post them? You'd expect both child and parent. If the parent's view is kind of against or taking a different direction from the child's view, you know, there's a very strong principle that maybe no image of a child should last beyond their 18th birthday. They should like get a clean slate when they become an adult. But we can definitely see the um, beginning to see the consequences of just that heightened visibility. We're always comparing ourselves to supposedly perfect images. If we're always thinking, how will this look as a photograph or will it get the likes? Clearly, that's problematic. And maybe for some people, they get particularly sucked into it and it becomes particularly undermining. There is one group of people for which the number of likes directly correlates to the number of dollars, pounds, or libra in their digital wallets. Yes, I'm talking about the role of the influencer. Today, the world's top influencers make more money than Hollywood superstars, and often their faces are more recognizable. But this wasn't always the case. When Lee Plunkett wrote her book, the role of commercial sharenting had barely begun. Here she is explaining it. I would define commercial sharenting as the process of using intimate information about children and putting it into one or more digital devices or platforms, so old school social media, YouTube videos, etc., and doing so in an attempt to monetize it and gain some sort of revenue stream from it. There wasn't, back when I wrote the book, the focus that there has subsequently been on the ways in which both sort of, we might think of them as IRL in real life celebrities. So your your movie stars and your singers were crossing over into the digital space and using their children as part of their personal brand 
or your homegrown digital influencers. So the mom out in Utah who manages to create a multi-million dollar empire by recording her kids. We were just seeing that in many ways as a particularly appealing and profitable subset of digital discourse. So yes, so the term and the identification of it was new. No, it's not new in that if you think back to all the ways over the centuries that children become monetized, whether way, way back they were helping to run the family farms or in some places, uh, at least in the US, they, they still were in 2019, or they were being shipped off to factories or put on orphan trains to get out of the big cities in the U.S. in the 19th century and head west. So the no part of of it not being new is that we have monetized children's activities and really treated them as labor that gave value to families and businesses and communities for a long, long time, even while, at least in recent memory, we have paid lip service to not doing that. Parents, consciously or not, want to emulate the people around them who are being held up as successful. And also because it is in the business interests of commercial sharents of these influencers to have people who want to be like them so that they will continue to engage with the content that they're putting out. So the idea of using children for financial gain isn't new, but it was 15 years ago that it took on a digital spin. Emma Walcott. I think that that was when it became cool for parents to monetize their children, create accounts for their children, and children played along. It was fun, it was exciting. They could see an impact. But what we're looking at now is a retreat. Um, Young adults saying that's actually not, it's not okay to keep that in the public domain indefinitely. And it's okay to say that was my childhood and, and that ought not to have been shared. Now parents are routinely sharing not just you know, the occasional image, but daily, hourly photographs online. The studies show that children by the age of five tend to have thousands and thousands of those photographs online. First, I know that I don't look cute, but they think I look cute because, you know, mommy goggles, like everyone thinks their child is cute and it's like, stop lying to yourself. I'm thinking, oh no, how many is it going to take this time? How long is it going to take? <laughs> If I do look cute, they can show it to their friends, but not when they're comparing kids, because I feel like that's what a lot of parents do. I'm glad he doesn't post it on social media, because I've heard uh, stories of kids who really embarrassing pictures of them posted online. You know, when you have a book with all your baby photos, you choose who to show that to. You don't just, like, put it on a lamppost outside your house so strangers can walk past and be like, oh, there she is, covered in goo. Considering this is the first case of its kind, what will be its lasting effects? I think parents are having to wake up and realise that they can't make decisions on behalf of their children and that young people are entitled to start their adult lives free from the worry and concern that embarrassing pictures taken of them when they were children can continue to blight them into adulthood. What we'd really hope is that people think carefully about how they share information, photos, data about themselves, but also about others, including their children and members of their family, particularly when there are young people concerned who don't have a choice in the matter. But Lee Plunkett, who predicted this outcome 10 years ago, is more poetic in how she sees the future. To paraphrase Robert Frost's famous poem about nothing gold can stay, 
right? Nature's first green is gold, its hardest hue to hold. I think that you can't get back those moments going back to preconception that have been sharented. But we do always have the ability to make sustained changes in our daily habits that add up to profound personal and societal shifts. So I am eternally optimistic about this. We will have to wait and see what this case means for all the Sharenters out there. And all of us here would like to thank all the children who shared their opinions throughout the program. Our thanks to Anya, Annabelle, Sarah, Chloe, Charlotte, Courtney, Ella, Alana, Liam, Georgia, Jackson, Lucy, Sam, Samir, Tate, and Grace. We thank you for all your great opinions. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. And now we're back in 2019, and that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.